Friends, the year was 1980, the height of the Cold War between the Communist East and the uh, non-Communist West, the, the rise of sport as a part of the Cold War. In 1980, the Summer Olympics were boycotted by the United States in Russia, and in 1984, Russia boycotted the, the Olympics that were held in Los Angeles here. Sport had become a way of playing out the animosities and the fears and the competition of the Cold War. And this was 1980, and the Russian hockey team, the Soviet hockey team, was relentless and unbeatable, striking fear into the heart of every coach and player who had to get ready to play them. And the United States was getting ready to play them. In a game, that became known as the miracle on ice. The United States came up with an upset victory that made America a hockey nation for just a little while. <laughs> Before it, there it, it was, hockey was a minority sport played in the North. Think of all the Southern climes that have hockey teams now. Something changed in 1980 because we as a people are suckers for a good underdog story. Don't you think? When, when sociologists and, uh, and historians try to figure out why that is, a lot of them go to the long odds. You know, there were 1,000 to 1 odds on the United States team winning that game. By the way, in Vegas, it was 1,000 to 1. That's, if you're better, that's a pretty good odd. Um, the, the odds of the United States or the colonies winning the Revolutionary War must have been astronomical. And yet, here we are, the United States of America, one month from today, will be celebrating uh, independence again. Maybe that's why we're an underdog people, or maybe it's that story that's laced through our Christian history. Maybe it's David and Goliath. We love an underdog story. We love the story of someone who succeeds against long odds. And I'm telling you, if you like an underdog story, you're going to love today's scripture. Because today's scripture takes us to that amazing moment when Jesus finally appears to the disciples at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has risen from the dead and talked to the women at the tomb in the Gospel of Matthew. But she, Jesus has told the women, go tell my disciples that I want to meet them in Galilee and kind of sets an appointment for his first appearance to them. You know, we know about in the other Gospels, we have the road to Emmaus and we have breakfast on the beach and all those things that we went through during the Easter season. But this one was all the way up in Galilee and it was appointment meeting. So Jesus gets there and he commissions the disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. These are 11 guys we're about to see their track record, which isn't promising. Eleven guys being told, go and make disciples of all nations. Right? That is an underdog story. And it may seem far away from us, but when you hear the word evangelism, when you face a Sunday sermon that says, so go out and share with your friends, how many of you quiver first? 
How many of you watch the numbers of the decline in attendance and of membership in churches in the United States and sort of worry that this is becoming more and more of an underdog story in our time? You're going to love this passage. The Great Commission, we call it. Let's read it together and let's listen together for the Word of God as it comes to us from Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. That passage is thrilling in its own way. And it seems from this 20th century distance, it seems likely on its face. After all, we're meeting here on a Sunday morning with more people than probably ever met with Jesus in one place, other than on those big beach gatherings, right? We, this one church out of the thousands and thousands of churches in the United States, have as many people as Jesus would have in a big crowd. And he commissioned only 11, but but we think somehow at this distance, yeah, of course it won. Of course Christianity expanded. Of course they got to all the nations. And you know, I think the reason for that is when we picture the disciples, let's take a look. This is the way they're represented to us. This is the Thursday of Holy Week. We'll find out how, how they performed on Holy Week in a minute, but they've got gold around their heads. They've got halos already. So it makes us kind of subliminally think, oh, these guys were great. Jesus hired an awfully good crew, right? <laughs> Jesus called these disciples, and you can see poor Judas doesn't have one. Um, but the rest of them are full up, full grown from the arm of Zeus as faithful, amazing people. They've got all the skills they'll need. They've got all the courage they'll need, all those things, because they've got these halos. We get duped into thinking all of that. But let's go back and let's ask, how did they perform during the Holy Week that was, by the way, Jesus' big last hurrah, Jesus' big moment with the powers that be? How did the disciples do at their fidelity to Jesus at holding in in the clutch? And, and to do that, let's first go to the garden. You remember they fell asleep when he asked them to wake, stay awake and pray with him. That wasn't a good start. Then they got to the garden and Jesus had for a long time been trying to persuade and remind his disciples this isn't about, this thing I'm about is not about storming the castle. It's not about taking over rule. It's not about overthrowing Roman rule. It's not a military thing at all. Over and over he said it. In fact, three times he had told them, we're going to Jerusalem, they're going to harass me there, and then they're going to kill me there, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. Three times he told them that. They must not have taken good notes. Because here in the garden, suddenly one of those with Jesus put his hand on his sword, drew it, and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. 
Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take up the sword will die by the sword. So, but that's just one guy who got it wrong. We can still have hope. There are 10 others. We don't know which of the disciples that was, but everybody else may be going, don't you remember what Jesus said? But then we get to the next verse, almost exactly the next verse. (laughs) (laughs) Then all the disciples deserted Jesus and fled. All is all. So Jesus, in his time of great need, just about to go in and be tried by the most powerful body in Judaism, and then on to be tried by the Roman governor, Pilate. At that moment, when he needed them most, they all ran away and found safe space somewhere in Jerusalem because they were were scared out of their minds. Courage doesn't seem like the first word that comes to our minds. Then we think, okay, All 11 are gone, but now I'm seeing Peter's name back in the action because Peter circles back to the high priest's palace and and he's outside warming himself by the fire and we're thinking maybe he's rallied. Maybe this forsaken fled or abandoned and flee thing didn't happen with Peter in the long haul. Maybe he came back and now he's ready to stand up, stand up for Jesus. But then what? Two times he denies Jesus to the little slave girl who asked him, weren't you with him? And then the third time is this. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter for a third time, certainly you're also one of them, for your accent betrays you. And he began to curse, and he swore an oath, I do not know the man. Even Peter. Chapter 16, Jesus called him the rock on which he hoped to build the church, and now he he kind of fades under the pressure of a little servant girl and, and some bypassers. This is not going well, and even even when they got to that appointed time in Galilee, even when they went all the way out to meet Jesus on that hill in Galilee, look what happens. We may have passed it too quickly. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So he's he's gonna appear in all his resurrected glory. When they saw him, they worshiped him. So far, so good. But some doubted. Now, John Wasson effectively took us through the story of Thomas doubting in John 20, and we know not to demonize doubt. We know, all know that we have a part in that. But Jesus, the resurrected one, is standing right in front of them. And some doubted. And Jesus is about to do the most important thing for the whole future of Christianity. And he looks at their faces, and some of them are going, well, Not sure. Friends, these 12 didn't have halos, or these 11 didn't have halos at this point. Something had to happen to change them from the fearful folk who peopled Jesus' lives on that Thursday night, and even who weren't quite sure on this Great Commission moment. Something had to happen to make them different than they had been, or it would have been 11 former Jesus people done, right? But it's not. Here we are. Last week, we celebrated Pentecost, the birthday of the church, and we're still celebrating it. So what happened? That's kind of the thing I'd like us to stop with and actually ask, because these guys who doubt kind of share that with a lot of us. 
John rightly, in, in that sermon on, on Thomas in John 20, he rightly said, we all share in this. We should ask questions, all those things, right? But what, what made them available to the kind of courage and the kind of fidelity and the kind of boldness that we see coming into their lives later? I'd like to take some hints from that because you and I share in their, what? Share in their fears, share in their sometimes doubts. We share in their incapacity to do what Jesus is calling them to do. So let's look at what happened. One thing to notice about the way this story goes is they seem not to have, after Jesus said, go, make disciples of all nations, I'll be with you always to the end of the age, they seem not to have focused on their lack. They seem not to have focused on their own selves and capacities at all. They had heard Jesus say, I don't know if you noticed it in the moment between some doubted and go. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And at the end of the verse, after the go and and make disciples and all that, he says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I don't think those disciples were thinking much by the end of this episode about how they weren't up to the task. I don't think they were kicking dirt and saying, oh, no, he's calling us to do this amazing thing. What would Vegas put the odds at? Right? I don't think that's their conversation. I think he shifted their attention from their own incapacity to his own presence and capacity. They've watched him do things their whole time with him that were outlandish to them, that were impossible to them. And they came to conclusions that the gospel writers tell Nothing is impossible with God. He kept doing things that showed who he was and how he could do everything that was good and powerful. I think in this moment, they started to realize, well, if he's with us, we've got a chance. So one thing is, they didn't look at their own incapacity. They looked at the the ability and capacity of the one who would be with them all the way. And the second thing that I want to notice about their experience of Jesus compared to our experience of hearing go and make disciples. These guys have, I don't think, I'm a New Testament, in a former life I was a New Testament scholar and I know the Gospels fairly well. I don't know that they've ever heard anyone argued into faith. In the Gospels, think of stories. I don't think Jesus in the Gospels ever really argues someone into faith. Here are the seven reasons why you have to believe. This is blah, 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 blah. That's not the way Jesus rolled. What did Jesus do? He did things that exhibited God's presence, and people were compelled and came along. And I, I lead with that because, you know, Christianity Today did a survey maybe eight or nine years ago and, and, and put it in an article in which they asked people of all ages, do you know that the Great Commission applies to you? Do you know that your calling as a Christian person is partly to go out and share the gospel with other people? Between 70 and 80% of us said, yes, we know that. We know that should be a part of our discipleship. We know that should be a part of our Christian living. We know that sharing is a part of what we're called to. But only 25% were even entertaining the thought of doing it. And so Christianity Today asked why. 
What are the things that keep you from that assured knowledge that you ought to be doing it and the actual attempts to do it? And the, the, their answers will be sort of familiar to you, probably from experience. The first one is, what if the person I share with asks a question I don't have the answer to? Anybody ever had that fear? Oh, they're going to ask something from Hosea, and I don't know Hosea. <laughs> and so we're paralyzed in front of the task of reaching out and sharing because we think it is primarily about content. We think it's primarily about sharing a bit of information or a bit of Bible or a bit of whatever it is and having basically presenting an argument for faith. We think it's that and we don't feel up to it. The second reason that people gave is I have some shortcomings in my own faith. Do you hear some doubted in that? I don't know if I'm fully altogether, and they don't use the word perfect, but I have some struggles in my own faith, which in, in my view disqualify me from, from the capacity to share effectively. So they either think, I lack enough knowledge to answer all their questions, so I'm not going to do it. Or, uh, my faith's a little jiggly, I don't want them to have me as an example. And so we don't share. From that 80% who say, yeah, I, I think Christianity involves sharing, down to that 25 who will even entertain it, we explain it by, I don't know all the answers and my faith's not fully informed. But I want to share uh, a map with you first. This is the map of Christian expansion from the beginnings that we just talked about till the middle of the 300s. And so it goes from when Jesus gave the commission all the way up to after Constantine has become emperor of Rome and made it legal to be Christian in the Roman Empire and even made it sort of endorsed to be Christian. This is the first 300 years, right? The purple is what happened while there were still a lot of persecutions. It happened before Constantine. And look how far they went. See the, see the it's hard to read all these, but see the lower right-hand corner where it says Arabia? That little tiny dot next to that along the Mediterranean Sea is Jerusalem. That's where Jesus died and was raised and where Pentecost, the holiday we, we, uh, that we experienced last week, happened. And then up, do you see that next word that you can't read? Antioch is it. Between Jerusalem and Antioch is Galilee, where Jesus appeared to these disciples. Two little tiny dots where Jesus did most of his work. Look how big the purple is compared to that. It goes all the way through present-day Israel, Syria, and central and western Turkey to most of Greece, or at least large parts of Greece, and western Italy and North Africa. See the purple in North Africa? That's a lot, a lot of work. And this is when people hated and persecuted Christians. So how do you think they made the progress? Did they make good arguments? Did they stand on street corners and say, these are the five reasons you have to believe in Jesus? In order to understand how this went, I have three profiles of conversion from North Africa. See that purple dot at the end of the boot of Italy? in North Africa, that's Carthage. And, or the city of Carthage is there. And there was a strong Christian population there. 
Three stories. The first is of Tertullian, who was a smart guy. We don't know if he was a lawyer or not. Some people think he was, but he certainly could make a, make a case for things, and he was a well-educated man. And he was, a, he was a skeptic to Christianity. As it rose around him, he had his questions, and he, he held them out to people, and they didn't seem able to answer them the way he wanted. And then in one of his works, in his defense of Christianity, his apology, he says, in a thinly veiled biographical sketch of why he became Christian. He said, I visited these people, and I said, look how they love one another, how they would even die for one another. And I joined them. It wasn't an argument. It wasn't people being able to quote chapter and verse. It wasn't having all the, that equipment. It was simply the Christians doing what Jesus told them to do, loving one another, and outsiders saying, I want a life like that. Tertullian, right around 200, converted because of that. How many, how many of you can love your neighbor? Right? How many of you can love one another in this room? Is it at least within your capacity? Probably more than Hosea? <laughs> I like Hosea, by the way, but not a lot of us spend a lot of time there. The second story is of Perpetua and Felicitas. This is one of the most remarkable stories in early Christianity. They are also from Carthage. And Perpetua is a, landed, uh, a part of the landed wealthy population. She's educated, which was rare for women at the time. She ends up writing a journal of her last days on earth because both she, Perpetua, and her slave uh, servant woman, Felicitas, die in the persecutions in the early part of the 200s. Perpetua recounts how she became a Christian or why, and she says it was all about my servant Felicitas, because I saw things in her life that I knew were empty in mine, even though I had a lot of things and she had hardly any things. And so Perpetua became a Christian because of Felicitas's faith. And they ended up both dying together in the persecutions and dying in strong faith. Felicitas didn't know the arguments. She just had faith. She knew God. She met with other Christians in community. And that was compelling enough for Perpetua, this high-standing person in Carthage, to join the group against her, her better physical interests. The third I want to share with you, I'm going to get out the quote because it's a little longer than those two stories. Um, well, not than the stories, but than the quotes in the stories. Cyprian was a mentee of Tertullian. So he ended up bishop of Carthage in the middle of the 200s because of Tertullian in a way. Tertullian mentored him along as a Christian, and he was a very, they were, he was part of a very prominent family. And he was a lawyer and a skeptic through and through. He had a friend, Donatus, and they used to make Christian jokes, right? They'd make, you hear about the Christian who, right? And, and they, they kind of poo-pooed it as a, as, a, as a thought community because they thought it was below themselves and their high education in Rome. But then one time, he, he hadn't seen Donatus for a while, his friend, and he decided to write Donatus a letter, letter because there had become a change in Cyprian's life. Listen. It's a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world, but I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and good people who have learned the great secret of life. They have found a joy and wisdom which is a thousand times better than any of the pleasures of our sinful life. 
They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are Christians, and now I am one of them. Cyprian, one of the smartest men of his age, smartest people of his age, he wasn't won over by argument. He was won over by the character of the Christians and how they loved one another and how they were people of God who had an answer that none of the other places he was looking had. How many of you, if you had been asked on the way in, can you live basically a Christian life in Christian community, would have raised your hand? Probably most. Probably most. It's why we come here. It's what we do. We, we form disciples at Covenant, and it's a great place to become a disciple of Jesus. Not many of you would have said, I can, I can persuade somebody to become Christian by high arguments. Some of you do that, and that's fine. I'm not, I'm not um, downplaying that, but that's not the thing we need as basic equipment. We need connection to God and to one another. We need love God, love neighbor. That sounds familiar. Love God, love neighbor. Friends, something happened on that, on that hill in Galilee. Doubting disciples who had just had the worst week of their life came together to see Jesus. And even when they still doubted, he said, I got your back. All the authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he, he looked them in the eye as he said that. And I'm sure they felt, wait, he's with us? And then he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And then looking them in the eye again, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. My money is on. The long odds of Christianity making it to here and now being a result of that moment when they realized it's not about our talents, it's about God with us. So I had to miss last week. Pentecost, it's one of my favorite holidays of the year, but I was off preaching somewhere and I couldn't be here. But I thought I should bring a present, so I brought a cake. <laughs> and the cake the question asks, how many birthday candles on a cake is too many because you've got fire hazards and everything, right? It turns out that if the people who triangulate and try to figure out when Pentecost actually happened are right, it happened in 33 AD, which means that last Sunday, you all gathered and celebrated the 1990th birthday of Christianity. 1990 years started with those 11 on a hill in Galilee, and a Jesus who told them, I'll be with you. And it turns out you had a lot of company worshiping last week because around the world, we have now billions, literally billions, of Christians in every land in the, in the world. Turns out that against all odds, God did something amazing beginning at that hill in Galilee. And all it took really was looking the disciples in the eye and inhabiting them by being with them to the end of the age. That offer is available to us as well. And at Covenant, we celebrate the glory of being Christian by connecting with God 
and with one another and being formed as disciples who can simply share our lives, who can be a love letter to the city of Austin. I believe that that God wants to continue this story through us and that that Christ is looking us in the eye and saying, I got your back. Amen.